This conversation was originally presented as part of the BioLynx Alliance Greater and Squirrel Gladys Symposium. The expert panel for the Squirrel Gladys State of Play discussion includes Dr. Mason Crane from New South Wales Biodiversity Conservation Trust, Dr. Rodney Van Der Rie from the University of Melbourne and WSP Australia, Associate Professor Ross Goldingay from Southern Cross University, and Jerry Alexander from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, Victoria. This session was facilitated by Greg Borschman. Everyone, uh, welcome to the Squirrel Glider State of Play panel discussion for the Glideways Forum. It's Wednesday, the 28th of October, and we have some terrific experts here today who've spent decades uh, with their professional lives looking for understandings and how better to look after this uh, amazing arboreal uh, animal. My name's Greg Bushman. Uh, I'm a, uh, a writer and uh, an author, an oral historian. Uh, I confess to a bit of a, an interest in uh, arboreal species at the moment. After 20 years, I've just left the ABC to write a book on koalas. So uh, I'm intrigued at some of the overlaps and parallels uh, between uh, gliders and possums and koalas. Folks, we, uh, the BioLinks Alliance, who've brought this uh, forum together yesterday and today, they acknowledge the traditional owners of all of the places where we live and work and uh, recognise and respect the enduring relationship that those people had with their lands and water and still have. Um, it's a lesson and a model for us. Uh, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Um, Ross Govingay, Jerry Alexander, Mason Crane, and Rodney Vander Rio. I, I want to sort of keep everyone focused today on the hypothetical question what do we know now and where do we want to be in 10 or 30 years' time? Because we're, we're catapulting into a future world that's going to be defined by climate change. We've made all sorts of political promises far from adequate about uh, climate action. And I, want to, I really want to try and frame today's discussion in terms of what opportunities does that bigger environmental conversation that we're trying to have about climate, about uh, habitat restoration, what's the spin-off? Uh, can, can the squirrel glider be uh, a caboose at the end of that train? So I'm going to start with all of you with a personal reflection, because I think it's really important. It's not just the science. This science is not some godlike machine that delivers us magic answers that everyone listens to. Um, that's, that's, a, uh, that's, that's worth remembering. It's a quote from Tom Rich, who is the paleontologist at Museums Victoria. Ross Goldingay, uh, you've been around a long time. That's no criticism. Uh, and I don't want that to reflect on you poorly. But uh, what did you know then? And what do you know now? Uh, thanks for that one, Greg. Um, I guess I started in the uh, in the early 80s. And I, well, you know, it's easy to say I knew nothing then. But I, I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is that um, you know, back then, we, when someone like me was enthusiastic and wanted to go out and study gliders, you really, 
were struggling to find out where the best places were to go. So you sort of relied on someone that was, might have already been doing some field work and you relied on whether they had actually, you know, just happened to be at a good site for, for a particular species. In the case of squirrel gliders, like one of the, the places I ended up at was um, Bombala, so down on the New South Wales Southern Tablelands and working as a volunteer with Rod Kavner. And in those early days, I mean, we really didn't know much about squirrel gliders or where they were. And of interest to me now, and I think back, is that there were some, Rod had made a few um, observations. And if you read any of Wayne Braithwaite's work, um, there is reference to a small number of animals seen that they thought were squirrel gliders. But, uh, you know, I spent about six years in the forest down there and there was definitely no squirrel gliders and it wasn't their habitat. But it just sort of highlights how you know, there was a big question mark back then, whereas now I could take you to a lot of places where there are, you know, reasonable populations of squirrel gliders. Um, and, and I guess also some of the techniques, like in the early days, Andrew Smith had started the, the tree trapping technique with, and I guess I should also mention um, Steve Craig did as well in Victoria. Maybe he was the first. Um, but that's sort of a bit, little bit more routine now, but certainly you know, climbing trees and, and putting ladders, ladders or um, I, I built ladders down at Bombala to put my traps on trees, but tree trapping wasn't sort of, you know, a routine thing. Whereas now we, we do um, sort of uh, several surveys per year up in, at a site in Brisbane and we just have a, a single frame ladder that we walk around and our, our traps are at about three, four metres above the ground and, you know, we catch you know, a good number of gliders each time we go there. So I guess that's part of my reflection, just not, you know, in the early days, not knowing where things were, if you wanted to really go and study them and then, you know, what was the best technique and, you know, should we do, you know, how high on the tree should we go with our traps? Or if you're building a ladder, you know, how high up should you go? Anyway, I'll flick it on to someone else. Thank you, Ross. Um, and we will talk about some of that uh, hardware because I, I noticed Rodney Vander is, uh, is has got a terrific. He beats us today for the uh, for the backdrop. Um, so we are going to talk about some of the hardware because that's an interesting part of obviously solutions that we've tried, begun to try to put in place. I just want to stick with you for a moment longer, Ross, about distribution. You you made a comment when we spoke a week or so ago about the disjunct populations in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Just, just very briefly, just give us a sense of what that means for long-term conservation prospects for the species. Well, Craig, there's, there's, two, two th there's a couple of things you need to um, consider. One is that the genetic work that's been done demonstrates that there's actually two separate parts of the geographic range. So there's, there's one part perhaps somewhere north, you know, running from north of Sydney through into Queensland up to North Queensland, which is genetically distinct from that that occurs on the uh, southwest slopes of New South Wales and runs down into Victoria. And those populations, the southern, the southern segment, uh, are particularly threatened because they occur through areas that have been historically cleared for agriculture so, um, you know, typically they're characterized by, um, you know, isolated um, patches of habitat. So, you know, you might struggle to find very, very large patches of habitat that's got, uh, you know, large populations. I guess the ones that come to mind are the ones that Rodney studied in the roadside remnants where some of those roadside remnants are very long and continuous. So potentially you could have a, 
a large population, but it's a, it's a very unusual situation. So, you know, that, that's part of what we need to get a better handle on, the, the Southern Geographic Range segment uh, and, what, you know, where those populations are, how secure they are. I mean, I had a look this morning, Greg, on the Atlas of Living Australia, and it, it doesn't seem to be up to date for Victoria, but there's 17 records of squirrel gliders since 2010. And I also checked there, there are historic records from South Australia near the, the border with Victoria. And again, the only records in the, um, the Atlas, they seem to indicate those very historic ones. So, you know, we, there, are th there are areas through the geographic range in, in Western Victoria and going into South Australia where we still don't know what the status is of those populations. Thanks, Ross. Um, Mason Crane, Jerry Alexander, Rodney Vandery, I'm, I'm just you know, going to very quickly come to you, uh, all three of you, for, for that initial overview or reflection. What did you know then? What do you know now? Mason Crane? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. They, they, um, I guess uh, it's a bit the same as what Ross, Ross was saying, like I started a bit later on in the early 2000s and um, when I studied down at Charles Sturt in Albury there, I soon discovered there was heaps of great wildlife out there, including the squirrel glider. And we always saw it as always in really good patches like Chilton National Park and that type of thing. And you really took, like you never really um, uh, appreciated the value of things like paddock trees, roadsides, small woodland remnants on, on farms. Like we thought they were sort of empty. And it's only once I started um, working with the ANU, we soon found that there's things like squirrel gliders, anticinus, all through this agricultural land and um, sort of opened our eyes up. Like originally when I started, they talked about squirrel glider habitat, that you know, it needed an understory of acacia, uh, a couple of um, eucalypt species and that sort of thing. And it was based on a lot of the stuff up the coast, uh, the habitats up the coast. And then we started finding them in areas where it's a, nearly a totally exotic understory and just a couple of scattered paddock trees, often of one, one species. So um, we started to do more and more work in the farmland and found more and more gliders. And I think that was one of the issues and still is a bit, and it's probably one of the issues down in South Australia was not many records. I don't think people are looking in uh, places where they're most likely to occur in areas of dense scattered paddock trees and some of these road reserves and small patches. Um, yes. Thank you, Mason. Look, where you've raised one of the most important issues that I really want to drill down on today, and I'm going to get all four of you to reflect on it, and that is the sense of farmers as eco-friends, because after 40 years, uh, I, I guess the question is, is it time to turbocharge and reinvent the models that we already have, such as land care? That's something that I really want to get to uh, with all of you. Jerry, in the meantime, the overview. What did you start with? What did you know then? What did you know? What do you know now? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Can you hear me okay? I might be dropping in and dropping out. No, you're on our radar. Beautiful. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank uh, those that, are, that have organised this, this uh, shindig and particularly Bert Lobert. I don't know if he's listening in, but uh, for contacting me and being part of this illustrious panel and also for Sasha and, and Sophie for, for doing the organising. So getting back to the question, Greg, um, I started back in 1980 when I wanted to 
to do further study in zoology. And I went to my professor of the Department of La Trobe Uni and he said, sorry, Jerry, you're not good enough to, to do anything like that. Um, go out and get some work experience. So um, I got a job as a, as a geologist and realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to be a geologist and then continued uh, doing a whole lot of volunteer work up and down the East Coast trying to work out what I wanted to study. And uh, luckily I, I got onto people like Michael Archer and John Callaby and Steve Van Dyke and they, they pointed me in the right direction. And uh, I worked out that uh, there's a lot of work that needed to be done and questions asked about even the, the identity of sugar gliders and squirrel gliders. So working out the difference between the two. So um, at some stage there, I was able to come back and look at the taxonomy of the Pitoridae and specifically looking at skull morphometrics. Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, I'll have to pull that out, sorry. That was mine for a minute. Well, look, as long as it's not the ATO. <laughs> we don't know. The ATO or the Australian Federal Police, as very, long as it wasn't either one of those, uh, uh, Jerry. Very sorry about that. I didn't didn't predict that. I'm in the shed. Um, and uh, so I, um, I did the study and uh, finished up that study. And then I was, I'm, I think I'm one of the really fortunate people that I've managed to uh, get a job where I've on something that I've studied. So I was lucky enough to, to join up and once again, start off doing volunteer work with Fishers and Wildlife and, and do work with, uh, I think Ross mentioned Steve Craig. So I got exposed to the yellow belly glider and all the wonders of uh, trapping yellow belly gliders with Steve Craig. And that was an amazing experience. And then uh, got involved with people like Dale Gibbons over in Bendigo with a field naturalist club. And uh, Peter Menkhorst guided me through all the different processes at the Arthur Ryle Institute so that I could uh, go out and start a bit more uh, survey work and set up a small study site at Yambuna and uh, look for animals along the Goulburn River etc etc and work with Andrew Bennett in the uh, along the northern plains and in the box iron bark country so um, uh, like everyone said started with absolutely no knowledge and uh, with that sort of experience has I've been able to get a little bit of a picture a little bit of an insight into uh, what I, I find to be an enigmatic species. Mm. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Uh, Rodney, uh, Rodney Vandery um, from University of Melbourne. What, what's the, the state, of, state of play? What, what, what did you see when you started? What are you seeing now? Mm. Yeah, good, good question. I think um, for me, it was, I, I was interested in understanding you know the importance of connectivity for wildlife and um, I guess I kind of follow on where Jerry left in that he was doing these surveys across the northern plains of Victoria and my PhD supervisor at the time was Andrew Bennett and he said oh there's this place near Euroa that's got you know I think we saw a few squirrel gliders there that you know you might you might be able to do some do some work on them and so basically we started trapping for gliders in that area and um over the course of the next three years, four, probably four years, I probably caught a couple of hundred gliders, squirrel gliders, uh, almost exclusively in these roadside remnants and paddock trees. 
Um, and that, that started my demise, I guess. <laughs> ever, ever since then, I've been working on, you know, gliders primarily and things of connectivity. So, you know, there's that rope bridge across the Hume Freeway in my background photo there. So what have, what have we learned? I think it's what Mason said, you know, there, there's places where I go now and I just look at it and think this is such you know clapped out looking country there is no way there's going to be gliders here but inevitably they turn up and i think they're much more widespread than we realized not across their entire range obviously but within their sort of core geographic range they're they're often there they're often in habitat that looks pretty average um so i think i don't think we should be writing them off you know at any time in the future um but I don't know how long they can hang on for in that sort of that sort of habitat because it is declining in quality, and maybe we'll get to that later, Greg, about some of those things that we can be doing. And and you talked about the the frameworks that can we turbocharge the the frameworks that we use for for management um, because they I guess their future is not secured in the absence of uh, large trees with hollows. That's probably the key the key thing. We'll talk about hollows. Uh, I, I'm going to stick with you for a moment, Rodney, uh, because you know you've you've raised this issue of connectivity and the fragmented landscape um, that we have created with our 232-year uh, project to uh, develop this country. Yep. We've recognised connectivity as important um, over recent decades, but how good have we got at uh, walking the talk and actually doing it and actually making those connections of those remnants. Mm. So we, we, we know what to do. We know how to do it. We know when we need to do it. So we know, for example, that um, a road that might be sort of 70 or populations on either side of a road, like this background photo here, it's probably about an 80 metre gap and the populations are genetically different on each side of that road. So the animals are rarely crossing. We radio track them, they don't cross. We've done genetic analysis, they don't cross. We've done work with paddock trees and any paddock tree within about 40 metres of a roadside, gliders are definitely using. At about 70 metres, that's about the limit that they go. Occasionally we find them up to 200 metres an isolated tree 200 meters in a paddock but generally it's that sort of 70 meter threshold is about the the sort of the limit that we've that we've managed and and this this rope bridge here in the background and along with glider poles across highways um myself uh, student kylie soans ross has done a lot of work up the north coast of new south wales as well we know they work we know that gliders will use rope bridges and glider poles to cross roads and on new projects where there are endangered species, there's legislation that drives the installation of these things. On existing roads, there's rarely a budget or commitment to install it. So, it, so, so yeah, so when, when a road agency is building a new road, these things generally get built. On existing roads, it relies on local communities to either raise the funds, raise awareness and lobby the local road agency to say, hey, we've got gliders on both sides of the road. We're picking up dead gliders on the road. We need to do something about it. And then if there's enough momentum, it can happen. 
Okay, I want to go um, uh, straight back to you then, Ross, for a reflection on that one, because yes, you have done research and you, you, you've looked at those specialised road crossing structures for gliding mammals. Ronnie says they work. Do you yeah, agree? They, they, and how do we know? They def definitely work, Greg. Um, we've had lots of cameras on them and we've had lots of photos. So we, we did a three year project down at Port Macquarie, um, which is the mid north coast of New South Wales. And we there, there were two um, pairs of uh, poles, uh, glide poles, and there was one rope bridge. And we, we had four different species of glider, so a lot of use by feather tails, sugars and squirrels, um, and two records of yellow-bellied gliders. But since then, I mean, if you drive up the Pacific Highway north of Sydney now, you'll see that, I'm trying to remember because I, I did this in back in June, and the numbers now are something like, could be 20, 20 or more pairs, uh, sort of independent pairs of glide poles and maybe 30 rope bridges. So the road agency has really adopted that as a way of trying to um, maintain or facilitate um, connectivity. And, and a lot of those have been monitored. And I know because uh, ex-students, David Rowita and Brendan Taylor have been involved as consultants doing some of that survey work. So, the, you know, and, and they've recently published a paper in Australian Mammalogy documenting, I think it was like eight records, separate records of yellow-bellied gliders on a pole. Um, down on the north coast so you know we're um, over time we're accumulating more and more information that you know these species will use them and they they've had a lot of use by feather tail gliders too so you know the thing that comes up with feather tails is you think some of these distances are too great but if you do the trigonometry you find out it's not really that great if as long as you've got like a median strip pole as well as roadside poles but but they are crossing because they're picking up records in the median. Um, so the point, Greg, is yes, they, they do work. They should, and as Rod sort of pointed out, the, the unfortunate thing is um, that, uh, you know, agencies or local government or whatever don't have the funds to put these things in retrospectively, whereas we, we need them. I've been sort of trying to argue at this, near the site we work up in Brisbane, um, that it's in a, you know, the, the gliders are in a patch there and there's some other patches nearby, but they need to have more connectivity and, um, you know, they need to put up some poles. So yes, we need to, we need to sort of identify those locations um, and start putting these things in. And unfortunately, the cost of these structures is actually increasing, <laughs> even though they look quite cheap things to install. The, the cost of actually, uh, you know, uh, traffic control and all of that Risk management quickly adds up. Mm. Ross, I'm going to speak. Sorry, if I could just jump in there for a second, uh, Greg, if, I don't, if you don't mind. Um, I guess from a road agency perspective, though, rope bridges and glider poles are, you know, it's not even lunch money. It is, it is so cheap. When we're talking about a project that costs, you know, tens or hundreds or billions of dollars, it's, it's, it's not even. It's not even a. It's, yeah, you wouldn't even notice it in the budget. Well, that, that's true, right, but retrospectively, Ret they correct. A lot of money. Yeah. Okay. Look, I, I want to stick with this uh, concept of uh, well-meaning in, uh, in interventions. Uh, we've just discussed one that's effective, but 
Uh, and Ross, I'll throw this to you quickly, uh, and I'm sure everyone else will want to have Trippin's worth on hollows, uh, but post bushfires, uh, WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, partnering with a lot of on-ground conservation groups to rescue, restore, and future-proof forests and wildlife. Um, part of that project is nesting boxes, and one project alone has cost a lot of money. Um, and I know that privately you've been critical of it. Why? Well, I, I guess I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, normally I'm an advocate for nest boxes, but I, I guess the concern is having, having worked on nest boxes a long time um, and having heard the criticisms from people, you know, about they don't work. The, one of the contexts in which they don't work is when there's a lot of natural hollows. So a concern I've had, and I've seen this play out before where people put nest boxes up and then they say, oh, they don't work. We didn't get anything in them. But you look around and there's a lot of tree hollows. So we know from a lot of work that um, the nest boxes are really not going to be used or, or needed in areas where there's some sort of adequate number of tree hollows. And the concern with the, the post-fire situation is that people are just making this big assumption that the fires have gone through and stripped out all the hollows. I mean, a lot of those areas are burnt really hot, had few hollows in, to start with. So you know, maybe they do need um, restoration. Well, they do need restoration, but the concern is that there's going to be a lot of boxes thrown out there, um, and in probably in a lot of areas where they don't really need it because there's existing hollows, um, and then they're going to check them, and they find then they'll find that there's nothing using them because there's a lot of natural hollows, and then you know the tide will turn and they'll say, well, you know, nest boxes don't really work. But there's you know there's so much work that's been done, and a lot of work that my group's done that show that they do work but you've got to understand that you know they are context dependent if you if your landscape is crap and um you know there's no animals around they're not going to work and and equally if there's a lot of hollows there um they're probably not going to work very well either and we know you know fires take create possibly create as many hollows as what they take away but certainly in some areas they will they will probably denude some areas have burnt very hot and had few to start with and may, you know, maybe the trees weren't big enough to have hollows open up post fire anyway. Mason Crane, I want to come for you, uh, to you for a reflection on um, hollows and maybe specifically post fire too, because Teresa Eyre, the principal ecologist with the Queensland Herbarium told us yesterday that she was the most concerned about the loss of dead, not live, dead habitat trees in the last 25 years, a 40% decline in that time, but drought stressed in recent times and especially hard hit by 2018 and 2019 fires. What are you seeing in the country you're working in, in terms of hollows and fire? Yeah, well, I guess this landscape of the set in the southwest slopes, and it's probably similar in that area in Victoria too, is we're dealing with highly disturbed landscapes. So if they haven't been uh, developed for agriculture they've um, been forested uh, so they've been logged so there is uh, a natural shortage or not a natural shortage but it's a I guess it's a well there's just a shortage of of hollows and when a fire does go through there it's some big old trees that get hit pretty hard um, just in one of the bits of work I did on paddock trees if a fire went through an area, you lose 20% of your paddock trees on average in the south across the southwest slopes. That was based on about, uh, I think there was about 12 uh, separate fires between 2005 and 2010. 
and um, work that I know that ANU has done in a different landscape, but down in the um, in some of the logging landscapes in the central highlands of Victoria, that was a real big issue as well because you know a lot of the forestry prescriptions they'll leave a big old tree, but the that's got hollows, but there's no next generation hollow tree coming through. Mm. So when you do lose them, which are very sensitive because the fire gets up in the roots and then they burn like chimneys and drop out. So that's an issue. Um, dead trees. Um, uh, I know when I was uh, radio tracking squirrel gliders, I think it was about 7% of the um, dead trees that were um, uh, den trees for squirrel gliders were cleared by um, uh, fire, people collecting for firewood or just clearing, um, cleaning up their paddocks. So it's, um, it is an issue. Um, across the southwest slopes, we still do have a few paddock trees. They're in decline. They, um, um, often they're too far away from existing habitat to be uh, um, of use to squirrel gliders often, but there is a huge potential of them trees to become habitat for squirrel gliders if they can only just be connected through revegetation or in being included in, uh, in, in included in sort of projects on farms, conservation projects, you can create habitat for squirrel gliders uh, pretty quickly if you've got a few paddock trees in it. Thank you, Mason. Jerry, look, I want to come to you because uh, Mason's just raised a really important issue here. Um, cleaning up, the concept of cleaning up uh, country and um, old paddock trees. Uh, you, you've got responsibility for biodiversity and private protected areas within the Department of Sustainability. And I'm, I'm just wondering when you work with um, farmers on uh, PPA areas, private protected areas, what's, what's the attitude to uh, something like an old uh, paddock tree? Are they seen as important? And are uh, they protected? Yeah, first of all, I don't, I don't actually deal directly with the farmers myself. So I can sort of only give you anecdotal sort of things. I, I think in Victoria, it's, it's a mixed bag. I, I think uh, we're, we're quite lucky that we've got really good community groups that do value natural values and, and do look, look after the different elements that go towards high quality habitat. Uh, and, then, and then you do get occasionally those people where you drive past and you see that they're they're burning the stumps or they're pushing over certain trees and um, it's probably just uh, ignorance and a, a lack of understanding of, of what what uh, depends on that habitat attribute yeah okay look let's go to I, I'm going to come back to the farmers uh, in a moment uh, Jerry and I really do want your perspective from inside government there because I think it's important I'd just like to go to Rodney for uh, a moment though in this idea of habitat uh, restoration we, we've spoken about connectivity and fragmented landscape but Specifically, and again, this is something I wanted all four of you to consider, the opportunities that the next 20, 10 or 30 years offer us in terms of our biodiversity conservation targets and our climate targets. Uh, Rodney, the uh, 2021 to 2030 is, uh, is uh, declared the decade of ecosystem restoration by the United Nations. We had a goal uh, by 2020 to get to restore at least 15% of degraded ecosystems. I think you'd say we've 
probably failed miserably there. But 2021 to 2030, uh, we've got another crack at it. We've got a decade. What should Australia do to get anywhere near that 15% target? And how is that going to help the squirrel glider? Wow, have we got a couple of hours to um, get, <laughs> get through this one, Greg? Look, I think, ah, oh, wow. Um, if we, I suppose if we're just thinking about squirrel gliders, it would be, um, there's probably a few areas that I would focus on geographically and, and uh, philosophically is not the right word, but, but ecologically and, and uh, targeting the habitat requirements of squirrels. So there's lots of regrowing uh, forest, certainly in Northern Victoria, like the box ironbark sort of country, central Victoria, that's been logged over many years. So I think there's a shortage of hollows in those areas. So a, identifying those areas with a shortage of hollows and putting in either nest boxes and or chainsaw hollows and, and doing that in a systematic targeted way. Another area would be um, the linking up habitats along, whether it's roadsides, as in not adjacent to highways necessarily, but these country roads with low traffic volumes. Um, so connecting otherwise isolated populations um, across uh, through creek lines, restoring creek lines, restoring road reserves. There's also a lot of road reserves that are currently grazed heavily. And it's about, the, the reason we would reduce the grazing pressure is to allow regeneration to occur. So at the moment we've got uh, in many areas, this overstory that's 200, 300 years old, um, but they're dying. Those paddock trees are dying. So it's about allowing natural regeneration to occur. The simplest way to do that is to take stock off, reduce the stocking pressure, and that will allow that habitat to occur. So it's about improving habitat quality and it's about connecting populations through through reveg. And I think they're probably the two main areas that I would focus on in Southern Australia. It might be different up North, um, but that would be my, if I had to do two things, that would be it. Well, Rodney, I can't thank you enough because you've given me a beautiful segue into uh, farmers as eco friends here. Uh, mm. And I, and I want uh, I, I want to focus on this with all four of you because it just seems that this is an opportunity that we haven't properly or fully exploited uh, yet. We've, we've had land care for uh, more than 40 years. Um, it's been about uh, restoring creek lines and linking up remnants. Uh, but you then spoke about reducing grazing pressure, Rodney, and this gets us to the nub of the problem. A lot of agricultural landscapes have been flogged to an end of their biological lives um, to produce the food and fibre that we all want and need to live with. But where is the edge here? Where is the opportunity for the next generation of um, a turbocharged land care. Ye yesterday, David Lindemeyer spoke about the need to have a business case for the greater glider. Um, and I'm assuming you guys would say the same for the squirrel glider because, you know, there is a robust economic case that biodiversity conservation will deliver you economic outcomes. But 
in terms of reducing uh, grazing pressure and bringing farmers along and giving them an alternative income stream, how do we make that happen? Because there are some very tokenistic trials going on at the moment, federally funded, but how do we make that available at every farm gate? I'm gonna to come to you first, Ross, and then Mason, um, Ross Goldengate. How do we make the farmers um, our eco-friends, our, our biodiversity stewards? Uh, a good question, Greg. I need, need a few moments to think about that. Um, how do we make them our, our friends? Um, you want me to go to Mason first? Yeah, I've just had, I've just had a, a lawnmower guy turn up, which is a bit of a distraction. Okay, I'm going to come back to you. Hold that yeah, thought. Thanks. Yeah, tell that mower man to um, hold his, um, hold his uh, machine. Uh, uh, Mason, how do we make farmers, um, uh, you know, true stewards? How do we reward them for that? Because at the moment, it just seems a bit tokenistic. If they save or protect a bit of remnant habitat, if they restore a creek line, it's really not, you know, they'll get some biodiversity um, on-farm benefits. But there's not an alternative income stream. How do we kick this into the mainstream of the economy and make it drive income for... for a sector of our landscape that controls an enormous amount, that, that is the steward of an enormous amount of biodiversity. Mm, yeah, I guess the first thing I'd probably say is I wouldn't underestimate the, um, uh, the, the way farmers um, probably value the environment, uh, and it's not all of them, but you know, if people that live on farms that are generally own their own farms or it's a family farm, there's a lot of pride taken in um, their environment, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of issues like um, squirrel guides and stuff. They may not fully appreciate that species, but you, it's hard to appreciate something if you don't know much about it, or know that you even have it there. So I think there's a fair bit of um, sort of education that need, needs to happen, or just um, that type that type of thing. Um, I guess my question, though, uh, Mason, is how do we reward them for that? How do, how do we create a very powerful economic incentive to do that? Yeah, and um, like David said, there is economic benefits from natural assets on farms, so people need to realise that. Like some of the biggest um, potential uh, production gains on farms aren't generally going to come from better genetics and they're not going to come from... Um, uh, different products that you put on your land or different supplements you give your stock. It's about having an environment that, um, that helps grow your animals or helps protect your crops. There's studies that show that if you've got good shelter on your paddock, on your paddock compared to paddocks that don't have any shelter, you can have, um, you know, 17%, 20% uh, increases in uh, live weight gains in cows and sheep, uh, wool, wool growth there's a whole heap of studies that show that but there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of uh new studies that are shown and that information isn't sort that information isn't sort of getting out there so i think there's there's going to be that argument um i don't know if you'll ever be able to have a um you'll be able to sell squirrel glider friendly uh grains and stuff because it'll be such a niche market if everyone did it you it wouldn't get um you know it, 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 I, can't, I can't see it 
uh, been there. It's going to have to come in the form of, um, I guess, a, uh, a some sort of stewardship type arrangement, or uh, or just a um, code of um, practice, like forestry. So maybe agriculture needs something like that as well. Yeah, and that stewardship market inevitably has got to involve uh, government. Jerry, do you see uh, an appetite within government for getting more serious about this? I mean, you know, it's boutique at the moment. Can it become mainstream? I mean, can stewardship become a genuine alternative additional economic stream for the uh, farming community? I, I think we've already got good examples in Victoria where... Um... Uh, the right sort of things are uh, uh, being done on on people's property, and you can look at the region honey eater program that Ray Thomas started up, and he's he's not only put up nest boxes for gliders, but he's also um, done those necessary connections within the box iron bark in the Lurg Hills, and uh, he's got a lot of property owners on side where uh, they've replanted and reconnected. He's got school community groups involved. So um, I think it's just a matter of um, having the right people in the right place who are uh, passionate about it and, and then um, educating people, as Mason has already said, uh, not forgetting also Doug Robinson's work around uh, Euroa, Violet Town, where he's uh, encouraged farmers to only extend the fencing out 20, 20 or 30 metres away from, from the adjacent road reserve, and that's allowed regeneration to occur and which are critical foraging, provide critical foraging substrates for things like squirrel gliders. And, and all of that, even, even though it might be 10 or 20 years old, has uh, enhanced and increased the, the quality of the habitat in those sorts of areas. So I think it can be done. And it's just a matter of uh, doing the education and providing uh, some sort of incentive. Rodney, uh, you're chair of the Victorian Roadside Environmental Committee. Uh, obviously, you're focused on specific issues and a rather limited part of the landscape there. But the, there's a climate change question because everything we do and try and manage into the future is going to be impacted by uh, climate change. And uh, Gail Osborne wants to know from all of us, what are the impacts uh, that climate change might have on squirrel gliders? What are, what are you seeing there in your patch? Uh, look, it's it's I'm not I'm not aware of any research that specifically looked at the impacts, predicted impacts of changing climate on squirrel gliders per se. Um, but there's a whole range of ways in which they could be impacted. You know, from changes to fire regimes, so more frequent, more intense fires. You know, the certain species of trees that they might be relying on for food or for shelter, you know, whether if they can't handle the changed conditions, then then their primary habitat drops out. Um, and then it's just what can they actually move in response to, to climate change? And so I think that's probably one area where we don't have enough information and we're not um doing enough forward planning, I think, from not just squirrel guys, but probably a whole range of species. Can they move across the landscape in response to climate change? And uh, I guess for that, what we really need there is a, a statewide, probably a national wide plan of 
connectivity and connected habitats and links and reserves that kind of look 50 to 100 years ahead so that when you know when the proverbial really hits the fan the uh the the animals and the plants and everything else has got somewhere that is in within their climate envelope if you like where they can persist and at the moment we don't have that level of forward planning Thank you, Rodney. Uh, Ross, you're not off the hook. I'm coming back to you, but I'm just going to go to Mason because we've got a very interesting uh, question here from Cath uh, H and Stuart B. Despite efforts to communicate, and this relates to Jerry's point, despite efforts to communicate and educate, there is considerable paranoia among some people in rural areas in Victoria about linear remnants along roads being a massive emerging fire risk especially after, you know, recent wildfires, and they want to clear under them and clear them all together. Some people go ahead and do this, and we know species disappear. Many of these remnants contain large old habitat trees and are becoming degraded with time. How do we engage effectively on this front? Um, the governments and local councils don't always step in and help enforce protection in such areas. I'm sure Rod has got a quick thought on that, but I want to get some thought, uh, a thought from Mason. So, Rod, just very quickly from you, and then we'll go to Mason. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one because in some locations, you know, roadsides uh, where they are close to houses and close to fence, you know, certain areas, we, we do need to control uh, fuel loads. But there's plenty of roadsides that are miles from anywhere where farmers are clearing and, and, or, and other people. And I think it's about understanding the actual value of firewood, you know, hazard reductions works and where that takes place and where the benefit, what, well, what actually is the benefit and who benefits from that. And I think most of the time it's, the risk is over overrated. And so immediately after a major fires, we get this flush of people coming through cleaning up we talked about that earlier when it's not really necessary most fires don't start in roadsides or travel along roadsides per se mason uh, habitat or threat roadside uh, vegetation um i think uh, like rodney said the threat of um roadside vegetation as a um dur during a fire that it's uh, as something that spreads the fire is very very low and should be assessed properly. It's, it's overestimated. Uh, the the main threat on roadsides and fires is the grass layer, not the um, not the trees itself. I live on the side of the Hume Highway, and every year we've got a I'm dodging fires from uh, where cars are pulled into the dry grass. So actually having trees there might reduce the grass level, and uh, you'd probably um, you'd probably have uh, less less fires take off. But um, the I guess one of the big issues is during them big fire storms, trees come down and can block access for people to get out. So I guess um, that's that can be a real issue after a fire. And I've heard the people, we've, we're having this trouble up around um, around Batlow and Tumbrumba and Tumut after the big fires up there. Fire rips through and then you've got a, a lot of uh, big burnt trees. Most of them are regenerating. Some of the hollows survive, but they're... Um, pretty unsightly and they're a reminder of the terrifying events that the people went through and I think um, some of the community attitudes is 
they want it cleaned up to so they can start fresh again, which has a devastating effect on the environment. So really, I think you just need strong, uh, uh, I guess, political leadership to try and conserve these habitats and probably maybe not rely as much as, as we do on our roadside um, vegetation. We need to look at ways to, um, uh, I guess, conserve what we've got, but try and also develop um, habitat in the landscape that can be an alternative to roadsides or strengthen the roadsides because there is so many multiple uses for roadsides uh, to consider and um, they're always going to be under threat whether it's um, road widening or um, or just um, increased safety issues or urbanisation and that type of thing. Mason, thank you. Uh, we're rocketing to the top of the clock and uh, there's a uh, I'm going to stick with climate change uh, for a little bit. Um, there's a question from Teresa Eyre to all uh, the panellists. Um, what do you think about a consistent conservation status listing for the squirrel glider across their national range? Because this is one of the things that Susan Lee is looking at at the moment, upgrading uh, federal threatened species protection for 28 species. Um, especially following in the fires, currently squirrel gliders are not listed in Queensland, but they're listed everywhere else. So that's a bit of an issue and it sort of ties in with a question from Catherine Dursman and what is the coldest and what is the hottest habitat squirrel gliders can make a living in? Because there's obviously a range issue here, but there's an issue of how we go about protecting uh, those animals. Ross, uh, you've had time to sort out the mole man. Um, do we need a consistent national approach uh, for conservation uh, species listing for the squirrel glider? And it, how much is that going to change across its range with climate change? <laughs> I need to get the whiteboard out. Um, it's a bit of an abacus, sorry. Well, well I mean, when, when you threw that, that question to one of the others earlier about um, climate change, I mean, the point I would make there, particularly in the case of Victoria is that they need to identify what you might consider to be resilient populations. So the approach in New South Wales to threatened species conservation is that they, um, sort of the typical approach, it's a long story and I'll, I'll be very brief, but basically for a lot of species, they've identified priority sites. So, you know, there could be three sites for, for some species or more sites for other species and then you know, there's ongoing um, survey work at those sites and also uh, managing of the threat. So in Victoria, there needs to be some identification of the key sites. You know, it could be a, a large number of sites and then those sites need to be monitored over time. We've actually done um, some climate modelling of yellow-bellied gliders through uh, northeast New South Wales through Queensland and it looks pretty grim under different, you know, uh, scenarios into the future up to 2050, 2070. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see contractions in, in squirrel glider um, range as well. So the, the thing that will make them resilient if they do is if they do have bigger populations. So where we identify key sites, to, we need to try and you know, maximise um, those population sizes if we can. And that may be, you know, creating connectivity and expanding the extent of the habitat. In terms of the uh, the national listing, I mean, Teresa will might know better than anyone what the the sort of status is in in Queensland. Certainly in southeast Queensland, where where we do a fair bit of work, 
um, they're in a lot of remnant habitat. So, you know, they're, they're getting on okay, but I wouldn't say it's a very rosy situation. And I suspect because of, um, you know, expansion to mining in, in parts of central and northern Queensland and, and also people, um, you know, wanting to live near, near the coastal areas because where squirrel gliders are is basically less than 300 metres elevation. So they're priority sites for mining, for, for new residential developments um, and for agriculture. So, you know, without knowing the, the details of what it looks like through central and northern Queensland, I'd say it's probably not as rosy as um, some people might think. And I, and I certainly had a student, um, Tina Ball that worked up around Mackay a number of years ago and the squirrel gliders there were just, you know, persisting in, in remnants. But again, we're dealing with small and large remnants. Um, and over time, those, you know, they, they could well disappear from those remnants. So I, I wouldn't say it's a secure species throughout the range, but certainly in parts of northern New South Wales, there is quite a lot of, um, you know, some broader forest areas where they do occur. But a lot of those areas, you know, got burnt last summer. So potentially they've been, you know, they've been, the slate's been wiped clean from a few of those areas. Mm. Thank you, Ross. Uh, Jerry, just quickly, uh, we haven't talked about feral animals. Are they part of your brief? Are they on your radar? And what needs to be done? Yeah, uh, as much as every other threat is for threatened species uh, populations within uh, oh, this area, northeast Victoria. Uh, they're definitely uh, an issue along with uh, the, the lack of hollows. So if there is a lack of hollows, there's a lack of uh, nesting and um, shelter sites. And that just makes it even more difficult for populations to breed and find safe places to get away from uh, things like feral cats and foxes. So, uh, um, in that particular case, the, the mitigation would be to try and instigate a, an integrated ongoing fox baiting uh, program as, as far as possible across as broad a landscape as you possibly can. Yeah, and uh, we, we, were, we wait for all the genetic silver bullets, which uh, might be coming too. <laughs> Um, look, I, I think we need to uh, we need to finish up with a reflection on we've got five or six minutes left um, because this is all about what we can do as individuals. It's about what community groups do. It's about what citizen science does. It's about encouraging government to step up to the plate. Um, I know, Jerry, you want to stay focused on the positives and the good news, but the reality is that government is increasingly exiting this space just because it doesn't seem to have the resources or the will to to do a lot of what needs to be done um, i'm wondering if i could get a reflection from you on how things are different now this has been a very weird year um, we've had uh, a a shutdown especially in victoria and we've had a political response that's been based on science and an understanding that we need to listen to the science uh, Rod, I'm wondering what, what you see there. You, um, you know, are you seeing an opportunity in a, in a, in a post-COVID world that things can be suddenly different? Post-COVID world. Well, well is yeah. that if, if Trump gets elected, is that post-COVID, is it? Um, <laughs> I'll move on quickly from that one. Look, I, I, think, 
I think science is important, but I was I was reflecting just before as the other guys were talking about when I've seen the greatest local sort of actions to help squirrel gliders. And this was an example of a housing development that was planned. And I was, I went in, I did surveys for squirrel gliders. We caught animals, we were tagging them and checking out the population. The developers came one morning with the, the big, the big guys from, you know, the city who were the ones calling the shots and we got gliders in the hand and we showed them and, and they could touch them. And, and these were, you know, older businessmen whose job it was to make as much money as they could. All of a sudden, the roads were being redirected around patches of habitat. Where houses were going to go was being protected. You know, forest trees were being protected. So I think science is absolutely critical to guide. But at the end of the day, people still need a, a personal you know, opportunity, interaction, whatever you want to call it, with an animal to be able to say, ah... This is what it's about. This is this is the light bulb moment for them when they can see the beauty and the the you know whatever majesty, whatever you want to call it, of these animals. Mm, okay, a very important point, and it kind of gets onto a final reflection. I'd like to get from you. We, we, we noted earlier that this wasn't this was about science, but science wasn't going to necessarily change hearts and minds, that story that you've just told there. Uh, I want to talk to you about science and suppression of, of, of the knowledge that we have. We had a um, very important paper in 2019, uh, surveyed 220 Australian ecologists, conservation scientists, policy makers, consultants working through academia, government, um, and, uh, and obviously industry. And there were some shocking numbers in, in, in there. We're, we're, we're talking about 34% um, of uh, people working in government felt that their ability to communicate what they knew and uh, needed to say was suppressed. Industry, 30%. Um, but more than that, there was, there was knock-on effects that were quite extraordinary, uh, in, including affecting the mental health of people operating in this space too. Two people working in the corporate world having to leave the company that the, they work for. I, I'm just wondering, how do you, as individuals, how do all of you keep on going when you know what you do and when it is so hard, when you're constantly documenting loss? Mason, how do you keep your, your heart sort of beating true? Yeah, well, I guess... Like I've said before, the southwest slopes is starting was pretty heavily cleared landscape. So often you see a lot more gains and you see uh, losses. So and uh, that's always great for me. With things like squirrel gliders or working on private land in general, there's always discovery because no one's looked on a lot of these places. So you find new populations, which is always good. It can be a bit devastating when. You come across a place where the paddock trees have all been cleared out and you know that it could have been pretty good habitat. But um, that just drives you a bit more to try and um, point out the value of some of these things. But um, there's a potential for a lot of good news stories that could come out of the landscapes like the southwest slopes. Um, and people are keen once they're engaged, like Rodney said, once people have seen the glider on their place, all of a sudden, it's their next um, next best thing. We had one landowner 
that I used to work with, he had yellow-footed anticonus on his place and he travelled all over Australia looking for small mammals, you know, and never seen anything. And, and all of a sudden found he had them on his place. Every one of his kids did their assignment on that animal and they stopped um, cleaning up their paddocks um, and just took what they needed for firewood and left all their fallen timber just because he got to see that animal on his place. So I think there's a lot of work there to do in these landscapes. Um, and, and, it, and it's rewarding when you get these wins, I think. Boots on the ground. Thank you, Mason. Um, uh, Ross, how does the squirrel glider help your mental health? <laughs> Good question. I guess I work across a few different species. So when, when one thing's not running so well, something else might be. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, you know, the driving, I guess one thing that does give me heart, um, driving up and down the Pacific Highway, seeing the, the, the road crossing structures that have gone in, because, you know, I was advocating these back in, I've lost track now when it was, it was more than 20 years ago, and people just thought it was ridiculous, the idea of installing power poles to connect up across the road. But, um, you know, now it's become routine, so people don't, don't sort of bat an eyelid. But, but in terms of that, I mean, People, um, the, the average person on the road would not know what these structures are. Um, and I had a conversation with um, someone from the road agency, the project officer down at Port Macquarie, and, um, you know, people there didn't know what these things were. And I think it's up to, in that case, you know, we do need a lot of education. So that was an example where um, there needed to be some education, maybe even just signs to indicate to people driving past what these things were, because they look a bit odd. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not particularly with the glide poles, people look at it and they think, why haven't they, they still haven't attached, you know, it's several years have gone by and they still haven't attached the power lines. What's going on? <laughs> um, and in terms of what Rodney said, you know, people do need that real connection. So, yes, it's to some extent, it's sort of incumbent on us to, to catch these animals and, you know, and take them and show different people because certainly you know, people seeing an animal in the hand, a live animal is completely different to just showing someone a photo. And, and I think a lot of people do come around when they see an animal in the hand. So yeah, we've got to get better at um, communicating and, and targeting people because, you know, there are some fairly simple measures you can take to actually try and improve things for these species. So I've always been fairly optimistic and I, I guess, you, you know, you see a few little runs on the board, but there's still a, a fair way to go and, you know, after the fires of last summer, you know, you sort of do scratch your head, but, you know, it's up to our scientists to get in there and, and really work out what the impacts have been of those fires. Thank you, Ross. An animal in the hand. Uh, I'm going to uh, come to you, Jerry, for a quick reflection. Can you possibly uh, grab a, uh, a greater glider or a squirrel glider? Well, you don't, we don't want a koala. They're too big and scratchy. But can you grab a glider and go and visit Dan Andrews tomorrow, please? <laughs> Sure, no, no worries on that, but totally agree on what Rodney's saying and everyone's saying that uh, an animal in the hand and if you show people that, uh, they totally are transfixed and change their, their opinions about things. I used to take people out trapping uh, in a park nearby and I'd have plumbers and I'd give them a yellow-footed antichinus to release and all of a sudden there was this revelation and this new look in their eyes about about uh, what wildlife and, and the bush meant to them. And uh, 10 or 15 years later, they would still tell me about that animal that they released in, in, into the tree. 
And the other thing I was going to say is um, I deal a lot in fire management, in uh, forestry matters and uh, development proposals. And I, I think, you know, being involved in this industry nearly 40 years now, that um, uh, the reason why I keep going is because if, if I wasn't here, I, I think uh, we wouldn't have the input that we, we do in all of these sorts of development proposals. So even though, you know, you, overall, you might think that uh, the world's a bad place at the moment, that, that there are positive things that you can get out of it by just developing a rapport with, with uh, all people that you deal with, getting, getting them to trust you and making certain that everything you talk about is based on the best possible science so that they can see the logic and the rationale to what you're saying and that you produce and develop some pragmatic mitigation measures that uh, can be easily adopted uh, while still doing what, whatever the uh, proposal is for that, for that patch of, of land. And I, I, think, I think that's, that's the um, positive thing that I get out of my job is that, uh, that I can see that uh, people are shifting their way, way of uh, thinking about certain things and uh, and improving the uh, best practice on the ground. Jerry, thanks for that thought. I'm going to be emailing you tomorrow to check on whether you've been knocking on Dan Andrews' door with a glider. <laughs> um, I want to finish with you, Rodney, because you've started this last inspiring 10 minutes, um, a beating uh, heart of an animal in the hand. Um, it's got to be more than that, though. I mean, yes, you've got to make the connection, but uh, it's got to be more than that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, my, my career path was researcher. And then the last five years, I've been a consultant working on, you know, a range of, of projects for clients who want to develop. And so that, that earlier question about how do you keep, you know, going, it's, it's the change that I see both in a legislation, legislative sense and also in the expectation, the, the, the community expectation that, that developers, you know, should be doing the right things. It's, you know, this COVID, this COVID thing has shown us that people, particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, you know, our bush is getting loved to death. So people love being, they need to, we need to be out in nature for our own benefit. And when we see wildlife along with that, it's, 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 it helps. It's what keeps us going. And so I think it's that combination of, you know, for businesses and, and developers, it's about, you can, you can sell a block of land for more money when it's got trees. Houses with trees out the front sell for more than houses without trees. Um, you know, your cooling costs in summer are less because you've got a big tree on the west side of the house. All these things point to... Um, a social and economic um, incentives to to conserve nature um, and I just think yes we always you know, not we all but many of us we tend to focus on the negatives but when we stop and have a look it's actually there are actually many many uh, positive changes in the environment and yes the things we read in the newspaper about particular projects and 800 year old trees being cleared you know they they tend to be what take our, our focus, but there are lots and lots of other wins as well. And I think that's important that we don't just focus on the negatives. 
Rodney Vandery, uh, Jerry Alexander, Ross Goldingay, Mason Crane. It's been a terrific session. We've gone, we've been a bit naughty and gone over time, I think, because we were inspiring each other and hopefully uh, our audience. This has been the Squirrel Glider uh, panel discussion, uh, state of play. And I, I think in all of that, uh, we found a little bit of hope. Thank you, folks. And thanks especially to Glideways and Sophie and Sasha, who have just been absolute pillars behind the scene, making sure that all this happens. Thanks, folks. The Greater and Squirrel Glider Symposium was proudly presented by BioLinks Alliance in conjunction with Strathbogie Ranges Conservation Management Network and Wombat Forest Care, and made possible through generous sponsorship from the Ross Trust, Pool of Dreams, Clara Lysa's Gift, and the Great Eastern Ranges.